Corey Brett Schneider, professor of political science at Brown University, spoke on his new book, When the State Speaks, What Should It Say? How Democracies Can Protect Expression and Promote Equality. This seminar is part of the Democracy Seminar Series, sponsored by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center's news, events, and research, please visit www.ash.harvard.edu. So it's a, a pleasure uh, to be here at the Ash Center and to see uh, many familiar faces. Um, and thanks to Archon for the, the invite. Uh, I want to begin uh, by talking about uh, the uniqueness of the American approach to free speech. Um, there really is the, the kind of rule that governs American free speech uh, is an example of American exceptionalism. Uh, the US approach is just different from the rest of the world uh, in that we protect from criminalization all viewpoints regardless of how heinous they are. Uh, so Nazi speech in certain instances, uh, the actions of the Ku Klux Klan banning crosses, uh, when they're not direct threats are protected uh, as opposed to uh, the rest of the world. Uh, in Europe, for instance, uh, the Nazi party uh, is banned. Uh, in France, uh, 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 hate speech towards Muslims uh, is, is criminalized. Uh, so it seems to me that if the American approach uh, is going to be defended, there needs to be a robust defense of it against these other uh, approaches and this other uh, poll. And in particular, there are two kinds of criticisms uh, that people who take the European or the, the approach really of the rest of the world uh, bring towards the American exceptionalist approach to hate speech. Uh, the first is a concern about stability. Uh, the criticism basically says, that if the United States is going to protect groups and ideologies that are directly at odds with its own foundational values, at odds with the idea of liberal democracy, there's a sense in which liberal democracy just might be unstable. And critics who have this, this line in mind set, point to the example, for instance, of Weimar Germany. So in Weimar, they say, look, um, there was a kind of attitude of the state of neutrality towards fascism, and through democratic procedural means, the Nazis were able to take power. A second kind of criticism is distinct uh, but related. Uh, instead of a concern about complicity, there's a concern, uh, uh, sorry, concern about stability, there's a concern about a kind of complicity. The worry here is that if the liberal democratic state protects these hate groups and protects hateful viewpoints, there's no way for liberal democracy to defend its own values. And what this criticism says is that rights protection are a way of uh, seeming neutral towards the content of these views or, or even of condoning them. So I want to suggest today that liberal democracy can be defended and more specifically liberal democracy that has this rule of viewpoint neutrality, the American approach, can be defended but no, more needs to be said about it and more needs to be done in order to make it legitimate and specifically to answer these worries about stability and complicity. And the argument that I want to make is that, yes, the liberal democratic state can be viewpoint neutral when it comes to coercion or criminalization of these different viewpoints, but it also has an obligation to articulate the reasons for the protection. And the reasons for the protection are not themselves viewpoint neutral. In fact, they can't be. Once we start to talk about the justification of this rule, we're led into the realm of affirmative values. 
There is an ideal, I want to suggest, of democratic equality or of what I'll call free and equal citizenship that underlies the rule of viewpoint neutrality. And there's an obligation of the state to find a way to express, at the same time that it protects hate groups, to express these reasons for rights, to defend these values of free and equal citizenship. And part of what that entails is protecting free speech uh, for even in these instances for hateful ideologies, but also of criticizing them. The liberal democratic state, I want to suggest, has an obligation both to protect but also to criticize, and in some cases, and Westboro I think is one of them, to condemn. Now one complication here, and the Westboro example will bring this up, is what do we do when these hate groups uh, adhere to certain religious beliefs, or as in the case of Westboro, what if they're actually a church? And there I'm going to take a somewhat controversial stand. What I want to suggest is that while freedom of religion does entail all sorts of protections of practice and expression, that there also is this obligation, even when it comes to churches like Westboro, for the state to criticize, and in extreme cases, to condemn. And I'll say more as we go on about what modes this state expression uh, should take. Um, just to kind of highlight what's at stake, I think it's sometimes helpful to paint a, a kind of picture uh, that's behind the two dominant approaches to free speech. It seems to me that liberals who want to defend this viewpoint neutral rule that I've spoken about have in mind a worry about a certain kind of dystopia. And sometimes when we're thinking about first principles, it's helpful not to just think about ideals, but to think about the kind of state that we want to avoid. And so liberal Democrats, I think, are often worried about an invasive state where police cars are roaming the streets and listening into conversations. And when they hear anti-egalitarian or anti-liberal talk, imagine the police cars kind of triggering the police, you know, storming in even to your kitchen uh, dining room. Uh, and, and, you know, in the most kind of um, worrisome example, criminalizing that kind of talk. And so that leads liberals to this kind of viewpoint neutral rule. But it's important, I think, to also have in mind a different dystopia. I think that a lot of the people who take the uh, European uh, approach, which bans hate speech, uh, worry about what I call a hateful society, a society in which rights are protected, but where the culture is so filled and so dominant uh, with, with deeply anti-egalitarian uh, uh, hateful views, that it undermines the formal rights protections. So imagine a society that had rights, but in which uh, racism and racist jokes and uh, sexism and really beliefs in the inequality of women and African Americans were just prevalent despite these rights protections. And you could imagine that when it came to mentorship or hiring or a whole different variety of areas, that these formal rights protections might be undermined by these beliefs. It seems to me that the debate that Archon described quite well is often isolated, uh, oscillated between concerns about the invasive state and the hateful society. But my intuition is that if we could come up with a political theory that can respond to both of these concerns at the same time, that that would be the ideal. And that's really the challenge, I guess, that I'm setting for myself in trying to develop this third view. Uh, I call the view uh, value democracy to emphasize the idea of um, a rule of viewpoint neutrality undergirded by a set of affirmative values that are then expressed and defended by the state, even in the instance where uh, it leads uh, the, the state to uh, protect but also criticize some of these views. So let's get more specific about what this, um, how this argument 
um, works. I should say, by the way, that the point of, of focusing on rights and focusing on free speech is to try to avoid, is to try to avoid uh, taking a kind of virtue view or one that tries to pursue a certain conception of the good. My idea is rights-based. It's just that I think there's a need to articulate the reasons and values that underlie rights. Um, so it helps, I think, in talking about what's meant by the doctrine of uh, viewpoint neutrality and the related idea of content neutrality uh, to start by talking about the most important Supreme Court case, recent Supreme Court case on hate speech. Uh, in Virginia versus Black, the um, Supreme Court uh, looked at two sets of facts. Uh, in one, uh, there's a rally on a field where the Ku Klux Klan uh, burns a cross uh, in the midst of making all sorts of hateful statements about uh, Jews and blacks. In the second set of facts that the court considered in this case, uh, there's an incident that happens uh, early in, in a day uh, that's followed up by a cross burning on the lawn of an African-American family uh, in retaliation for the earlier altercation. Now the question that the court asks itself in Virginia versus Black is whether either of these instances of cross burning are protected by the First Amendment guarantee of free speech. And Virginia has a law that says that if you burn a cross, it's at least presumptive evidence uh, of an intent to intimidate or a threat. And that can be uh, made illegal. And I won't go into the details of the specifics of the facts of the case, but the holding, I think, is pretty clear and fundamental. What the court says is that when it comes to uh, the rally case, uh, when it comes to the instance of the Klan, uh, this is the expression of a viewpoint. There's no direct threat to any individual or group of individuals. It's a hateful ideology, yes, and the court acknowledges that. But it's still the expression of a set of ideas, and so it gets First Amendment protection. Threats, they say, are just a completely different instance. So that instance of burning the cross on the lawn just looks like a very different kind of case. So I want to start not with the instance of hateful threats, which I agree can be banned, but with this idea of the hateful viewpoint, the rally and to ask whether there's a defense that can be given of that kind of jurisprudence. And my suggestion is going to be there can be, but it, we need to do more than just defend it. So if you look at the best arguments, I think, for why it is that the rally should be protected, um, uh, they have to do uh, with uh, a commitment in democracy to hearing all viewpoints. And this is the Ash Center on Democracy. And so I think this part of it will certainly resonate with, with the mission here. Uh, Alexander Mickeljohn, uh, a, a Brown professor and later president of Amherst College, early in the century uh, was a defender of the, he was uh, an opponent of communism, but a defender of uh, really robust free speech rights and an opponent of the crackdown uh, on communist speech by, by the government. His argument is that even when it comes to the most extreme viewpoints, it's essential in a democracy that they be protected because otherwise people won't have the possibility of having access to full information of the kind that's required for democratic citizens to authorize law. Uh, so he gives a metaphor. He says, imagine that we all together find ourselves in a New England type town meeting. And imagine, this is now my example, not his, that there's a bridge uh, that's got to be built in the town. And it's going to be built on either the north side of town or the south side of town. And imagine that the moderator in the meeting starts to think, you know what, these arguments for the south side of town are just completely wrong-headed and even stupid. And so the moderator just starts to ban the arguments of people 
who want to argue for the south side of town. Now, for those familiar or even have some sense of the New England, this just seems like a weird thing for the moderator to do, right? Because the idea in the New England town meeting is that the people are authorizing the law. They're going to vote afterwards. And the intuition that Mickeljohn is trying to pump is that, look, in a real liberal democracy, we have to be free to hear, to hear every single argument. And if you're not free to even hear the terrible arguments, even the ones that challenge the existence of the town meeting to begin with, uh, then we can't really authorize uh, the law. And so if you ban the south side of town, there's no sense in which being denied the right to listen to all arguments, you really can make a free decision to authorize the law. Uh, in a, in a uh, different uh, version, it's really the same argument, but uh, the, the great uh, uh, Harvard political philosopher John Rawls makes a very similar sort of defense of viewpoint neutrality in his political liberalism. He says, ideally people will engage in public reason. They'll regard each other as free and equal citizens when they deliberate. Uh, but you have to leave it to people to interpret what exactly that means, free from coercive sanction, or else they couldn't really be said to be free to, uh, to, to, um, to, to, to authorize law. Um, if you look at the structure, those are the kind of arguments for the court's decision for protecting the uh, rally on the, uh, the, the rally case, that cross-burning. Um, but if you look at the structure of it, I think it's got a unique structure that hasn't quite been brought out. There is a defense of all arguments, but there's a claim in Mickeljohn and in Rawls's argument that uh, the reasons for the protection are themselves value-laden. And there's something I think that they sometimes fail to point out which is more than that, there's got to be a contradiction between the reasons for the rights or the values that undergird the doctrine of viewpoint neutrality and some of the views that are protected in this, uh, under this rule. So the Ku Klux Klan is a great example. We've started with them precisely because in their origin, in their foundational documents and the, the ideological reason for their existence, uh, they oppose the idea of equal protection. That's the reason that the Ku Klux Klan emerges. And Justice O'Connor in that Virginia versus Black decision does a nice job of the history there. Uh, their purpose is to oppose the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So you start to see in the instance where the Klan is protected that the reasons for the protection are actually at odds with the viewpoint that is protected. Now. Um, it seems to me that when you start to see that structure, when you see that third category, uh, there really are worries about complicity, or at least about the, the reasons for the rights, the reasons for the protection getting lost. Because after all, all the state is doing is protecting these views. It's not doing anything to articulate the contradiction between the state's own underlying values and the views themselves. So I think that what's needed isn't just a theoretical argument that says, look, Liberal democracy has values too. It's the reason for the, for the um, protection. That there actually has to be an articulation or even a promulgation, not just of the rights, including the right to free speech, but of that structure. There has to be a way of bringing out the contradiction between the underlying values of the liberal democratic state and the reasons for its rights protections and the values of groups like the Ku Klux Klan that enjoy that protection. The Klan claims to be the great defender of the, fort, of the First Amendment. They sell themselves as patriots. But that contradiction, I think, shows why you know, they enjoy the protection, but in spite of the fact that they oppose the core values 
of liberal democracy. So how can we bring out this kind of third idea um, of the uh, reasons for the rights and to articulate them in addition to protecting the rights? Um, to see the problem, if you look at many acts of state, they have an instance of uh, direct expression, right? In the criminal law, if something is bad, it's often banned. Or in establishment jurisprudence, we think the state shouldn't express messages that endorse a particular religion, and so the state is banned from doing it. But here, the rights protection is, in a sense, inverted with the message that has to be sent. And so free speech raises a particular kind of problem of, of inverted expression or inverted rights. So what's the way out of this? What's the way to express these underlying reasons uh, for the rights? Uh, some people, the move of the militant Democrats who defend, uh, that's a kind of term that, for the idea that liberal democracy needs a defense against groups that attack it and so that we should ban these groups. Often they assume that the only way to express the message of criticism or condemnation is to ban those groups or to sanction. But again, I want to point towards another way. So the way forward, I think, is to distinguish between different capacities of the state. Sometimes the state acts as a coercer. That's the instance of the criminal law. Uh, and that's the approach taken by these European countries. But sometimes it acts in a non-coercive or, or non-prohibitive, non not in the terms of the criminal law, but in an expressive sense. So take some easy examples first of where the state is acting in terms of expression rather than coercion. Uh, public holidays, for instance, uh, meant, are meant to announce a particular viewpoint, and they express a set of values. Um, so we don't celebrate, and these, these holidays, this expression, isn't viewpoint neutral. There are examples where the state takes its own side when it gives, uh, it gives voice to its own values. Uh, so we don't have, uh, we have, we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, right, to celebrate the idea uh, in the Civil Rights Movement that the Equal Protection Clause uh, was opposed to the notion of, of segregation. Uh, but that's a viewpoint, and we don't celebrate alongside uh, Martin Luther King Day with equal time, uh, Bull Connor Day, out of the belief, right, that, you know, there's a side that's actually this, the state's own side in that dispute. And King and O'Connor, uh, and, and Bull Connor, sorry, while, while you know, protected in their viewpoint, shouldn't equally be celebrated. Take another example, just again, these are easy examples just to pump your intuitions. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, Black History Month, right, it's not that school curricula celebrate equally uh, the, the civil rights movement and also segregationists and teach the history of the civil rights movement as two sides with a viewpoint and we're not going to choose between them. We teach uh, civil rights history as a realization of the ideals of the Equal Protection Clause as moving uh, forward towards uh, those ideas. So sometimes when the state acts, uh, acts in its expressive capacity, it rightly takes its own side in an argument, to paraphrase uh, Robert Frost, and the worry that liberals are people who can't take their own side in an argument. Uh, Justice Alito, uh, you see this too, I think, when it comes to confirmation of public officials, was asked about his membership in a private club in Princeton uh, that sought to exclude uh, African Americans uh, from the university. Uh, he might be protected as a matter of association and speech in joining such a club, but the uh, Senate, in bringing this up and in criticizing him for the membership, I think, again, is, is within its... Uh, within its rights of trying to articulate um, these ideals. Um, I should say that 
when the state speaks, on, in my argument, if it's going to articulate the reasons for these rights, there are also limits that come with that. Right? So it's charged with articulating an ideal of equality that underlies free speech, not with any set of values. And that starts to, I think, circumscribe what the state rightly says. So those are very easy cases. Now I want to try to go to the much harder cases and, and think about what the theory uh, can do. Um, let me talk first about a case uh, that involves uh, funding. And that's really where I think all the action in these cases is going to turn out to be. My view, and I take a pretty stark line here, is that when the state uses its own funds, uh, it rightly does so in support of its own message, and that it can withdraw those funds when it comes to private groups that are protected but that oppose these ideals. So the Christian Legal Society is an uh, organization, national organization of law students uh, in a number of law schools, including at Hastings uh, Law School in California. Uh, and they uh, allow gays to be members of the organization, but they don't allow gays to be uh, leaders in the organization. They can't be officers. And so Hastings uh, withdraws their funding, basically. It says, look, you can meet on campus, you can have these views, but we're not going to actually subsidize you, and we're not going to recognize you as an official uh, student group. And with the help of one of the best First Amendment lawyers in the country, Michael McConnell, they appeal that decision, and they claim that Hastings has violated their free speech and their free association rights. Now, the opinion uh, in that case, Justice Ginsburg's opinion, comes down on the side of Hastings. They say that they were within their rights to withdraw the funding. But the way she does this, I think, is really confused and strikes at the really one of the main flaws in uh, a lot of the thinking about free speech and hate speech and discriminatory speech and discriminatory groups. What she says is the reason why Hastings can withdraw the funding is because they have a principle of tolerance, what they call an all-comers policy, that says everybody has to be included. And O'Connor's move, in the opinion, seems to be that what tolerance is is a neutral idea. What's more neutral, actually, she says, than the idea of including everybody? But I think that what the discussion so far shows is that uh, hate groups or Christian legal society, discriminatory groups, it's, they, you know, they are not violating a principle of neutrality. The ideal of rights and the set of values that underlies them is not uh, neutral when it comes to viewpoints. It sometimes takes a particular viewpoint. And the reason why it seems to me Hastings withdrew the funding is precisely because they're disagreeing with the set of values that uh, Christian legal society is displaying there. And to try to massage that as just a neutralist opinion, uh, neutralist policy, misses the idea that the state is taking a side here. But on my view, that's fine, because there's no act of coercion. The argument that I've given you for protecting the Klan in the rally case is about not banning them and about allowing all viewpoints to exist. But I've also suggested that the state needs to articulate the reasons for this protection in the first place. And so it seems to me that in the same way that public holidays or curriculum can not protect all viewpoints but take a specific stand, so too we can withdraw funding without violating rights. After all, as I told you, Hastings allows the, this group to meet on campus, to exist, but they just withdraw the funds. And that, to me, is a way of both protecting and then also explaining the reasons for the protection. It's a way for the state to protect but also to criticize and to articulate its own defense of the underlying ideals of free and equal citizenship. Um, so that's the most recent uh, relevant case, but I think it has a history 
uh, and extends out. Uh, Bob Jones University is a university that many of you might be familiar with uh, that allowed black students into the university, but then once they were there, didn't allow interracial dating. And if you, any member of the university joined the NAACP or advocated for the right of interracial marriage, they were kicked out of the, uh, the university. Now, the IRS in the 1970s said, look, Jones might be within its associational rights to have these views, but it shouldn't be subsidized through 501c3 status. And the argument, the, at least a reconstruction of it, I think, is that what 501c3 status, what nonprofit status gives you, that kind of nonprofit status, is an indirect subsidy of the state. If I give a tax, uh, if I give a contribution to Bob Jones University, I get a deduction. And so that is a way of the state subsidizing that organization. So in the act, in the Bob Jones case, the IRS, I think, is doing exactly what I'm suggesting. It's, it's not challenging the right of the university to exist. It's withdrawing its tax preference and its subsidy. And what the court says when that, when that uh, decision is challenged on grounds of free speech and free association is, uh, you know, it's one thing to say that they have the right to hold these views as a matter of association and speech, but they don't have an entitlement to the subsidy. And so part of the argument is about direct subsidies like in the Christian legal society, but I also think that nonprofit 501c3 status comes with at least a minimal requirement to not oppose the reasons for rights and to not, that the organization not try to undermine the very ideals that give it rights protection in the first place. That doesn't make its um, free association or free speech to be free from being punished or rights to exist depend on um, the adherence to those values. But subsidy, I think, has to depend on those uh, values, uh, at least the minimum being uh, written. Um, uh, the tax code uh, requires that 501c3 uh, organizations provide a public good. That's, that's the, the understanding of the statute. Uh, but that can't be understood in a viewpoint neutral way. I think at minimum it has to be understood as not seeking to, to undermine the reasons for rights and the core, the core values of uh, free and equal citizenship that are essential in a liberal democracy. So that argument, I think, um, isn't just a historical one, and it isn't just applicable in the way that we should rethink uh, Christian legal society. It's a way to think, I think, about a lot of contemporary disputes that are either about hate speech or that are about um, organizations that espouse discriminatory views. So I've taken the position that the Boy Scouts of America, uh, which are protected in their discrimination against gay scouts by a decision called D Dale, it says, that basically the Boy Scouts, one of their core points, their core reasons for existing is to provide um, for what they regard as moral, and this is their term, clean living. Uh, and they think that part of that entails uh, discriminating against uh, gay scouts. So Dale is, a, in that case, is a, uh, a person who's gone, gone through the entire ranks of the Boy Scouts, including Eagle Scout, becomes an assistant scoutmaster, and it comes out in a magazine, in a newspaper article at his university at Rutgers uh, that he's gay and the scouts throw him out. Now if that's right, that the scouts have an associational right to uh, do this because it's core to their expressive purpose, they've stipulated that they're opposed, I think, to the idea that, um, that uh, people are, are equal regardless of their sexual orientation or gender or race. And the state has an obligation, if it's going to protect this group, to also defend its own values. And so revoking the Boy Scouts 
501c3 status wouldn't only be constitutional, I think it's obligatory in a world in which they've made that argument. They've stipulated that this is a core uh, set of beliefs. Um, what about religion? Um, one of the um, um, characteristics of the uh, tax code uh, is that all churches uh, uh, automatically get 501c3 status. They don't actually, most organizations have to submit at least an application and there's a worry that this isn't robust enough of a process, but churches don't. They are automatically 501c3 entities. Um, Westboro Baptist Church and the petition online, I think, although it's very vague in what's meant by classifying as a hate group, one way to understand or rewrite that petition would be to say that the tax code should be changed, not to allow all churches to automatically get 501c3 status, but to have something like what I think of the very minimal requirement that the group not in its primary purpose oppose these ideals of free and equal citizenship. Uh, and so like the Boy Scouts, I think that church gets without question all sorts of free speech protections from coercion and rights to religious practice. But does it, should it automatically entail uh, that they are entitled to that subsidy that comes with 501c3 status, that when I give money to them that I get the indirect subsidy that comes from my tax deduction. I'm just not convinced that that's the meaning of religious freedom, is that it entails that kind of subsidy. I think that the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the Congress would be within its rights to demand that like direct subsidy, indirect subsidy also come with at least a minimum threshold of not opposing these basic values. Um, the Kansas Supreme Court had a decision where they tried to get around this by saying that they'll protect the church, but they won't protect the activities of the Westboro Baptist Church when they're protesting. But that is the core activity of the church. And if you look at their website, there really isn't a distinction between them. So that seems to me to be a cop-out. A more direct way would be uh, to do in the way that I, I'm suggesting. Uh, they have it now. They are 501c3. Um, uh, so let me, uh, I want to get to questions, so let me just bring a couple of quick objections up. One worry is um, uh, that this will undermine the pluralism of our civil society, and there are all sorts of arguments for why a robust pluralism in civil society is important, and R&I trying to basically um, just make a more monotone uh, culture. Uh, I think, you know, we still have the radical rule under my way of doing things of viewpoint neutrality. These groups get protection. And so they will, because of that protection, continue to exist. And in fact, uh, I don't think the Boy Scouts would go anywhere if their 501c3 status was revoked. Bob Jones University, for instance, continues to exist and even to thrive under the current regime, even though they haven't had this tax status. They're kind of going through a process of deliberating about whether uh, in fact, they actually did eventually apologize for their former policies and have changed them and might seek to reapply. But it's not like these groups just disappear when uh, we protect but also withdraw these subsidies. So I think that there isn't, that it's just wrong to say that the pluralism of our civil society will just go away. In fact, it allows for the robust pluralism under this viewpoint uh, neutral rule. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.